0: Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Before we get into that lecture, I wanted to let you know that all of Associate Professor Doris McElwain's publications have been made available to the public via a website linked in our episode description down below. Please feel free to check it out if you want more Doris in your life. And now, on to the podcast, Lecture 25, Transference, Insight and Inference.
1: Okay, so um, I gave this as a workshop last year to a whole stash of clinicians of varying levels of expertise and all sorts of different stripes. There were the CBT people were up the back and there were the heavy duty psychoanalyst down the front that was pretty tough, I tell you, to sort of present something like this, because neither of them really were fully open to my message. The psychoanalysts, mm, statistics, mm, I'm not sure, assessment, mm, diagnosis, mm, could be good, not all that interested. CBT people, You mean unstructured conversations can be helpful? Are you serious? (laughs) You know, it's like, so, you know, I was really in the firing line for a zillion different reasons, and um, yeah, there's just no defending oneself at those moments, you've just got to stand for what you think is interesting. I'm not completely sure about diagnosis within a psychoanalytic framework myself. I'm not sure that I would work with it, but I think I accidentally work in that way already. In that when someone walks in, I kind of roughly suss out, you know, what I would see as the major area of difficulty for them. And that would make me, um, make all sorts of decisions about do I leave a silence or do I fill in the silence? Um, if they ask me a direct personal question, do I answer it? Um, if it's not, you know, too invasive or do I sort of say, why do you ask? Right. So all sorts of little treatment decisions are made on that sort of first impression that you get clinically with someone. And what this is trying to do is convey to you some of the underlying parameters that a a skilled clinician, I'm not saying I'm skilled, but that a really skilled clinician uses to work out roughly what's going on with a personality when that personality walks through the door. It's also a person, but by and large, you do abstract away from the person a little bit at the start to work out what's going to keep this person safe. How fast can I work? What can I assume is intact? What can I assume is not working all that well for this person? So in a sense, when I was giving this talk last year, it was really to people who already were unbelievably experienced clinicians. And I was trying to suggest that assessment might be a useful supplement for something that they already do, which is they hear people speak and they listen in a very skilled way. Now, in psychology, you and I are used to, when someone sort of says, well, what's the relationship between psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism? We're used to getting answers like this. Oh, they intercorrelate. And that's often the end of the story. But we don't want that to be the end of the story if we're working clinically with someone and if we want to treat them. Or if we're working in another setting with someone and we want to be able to write a report about them, so, that the person who is going to treat them knows what to expect. Okay, so if you're passing your expertise from your peers, from you to your peers, how do you write about people in a way that's comprehensible to others who don't yet know this person? So, that's what today is looking at in some ways. So, I'm going to talk to you about the advantages of assessment. Then, I'm going to talk to you about the Shedler Western assessment procedure, which is a system that you can get online very cheaply and the rationale behind it. Um, I prefer it to the DSM. I'm not at all a fan of the DSM way of thinking. Um, I think there are real drawbacks to assessment, and that really beautiful online video that someone put up yesterday afternoon about um, psychopaths was a really great, Example of the drawbacks of assessment that you ignore all the normal stuff if you're looking for pathology You ignore anything that might make a person seem actually quite sane. And then of course at the very end if I get time and I probably won't I'm going to give you a look at how I effectively profile personality styles in the research that I do and then I'll pick up on that again for um, Next week's lecture, which will be the last one you'll have for me. So Nancy McWilliams If you're interested in buying, if you think this might be something you really want to do, say, and you're interested in buying a really good book that's incredibly readable, I would honestly recommend Nancy McWilliams' book called Psychoanalytic Diagnosis. If you're really keen, you could email me and and I could see if I could get a bulk buying for you. And perhaps we could um, get the bookshop to get them at a reduced rate or something like that. But it's... I've certainly got the first edition and the second edition of it, and I'm just so used to reading it now. It's, I find it a very, very helpful way to think. Now, she suggests that if you're very careful in the way that you apply assessment concepts, if you don't use them in an abusive way, she asks the question, can labels and diagnostic labels, can they increase a client's chances of being helped? Now, often... Labels are quite abusive. Like if someone says to you, "God, you're a right hysteric," right? You're very rarely going to go, "Oh, thank you, that's really great. You know, <laughs> so glad you told me." You know, or uh, "You're psychotic," or "You know, you're borderline." I mean, they're terms of abuse if they're outside of analysis, and so you have to be a bit careful with that. I remember once um, when one of my wilder friends was telling me about his or her sexual exploits, I was going. God, you're just ticking all the boxes on the paraphilias there and oh, they were just crestfallen that I'd even use such a word, you know. I didn't mean it abusively, but you've got to be careful, you know, you can get too comfortable with those labels. I don't use the word paraphilia. I was actually joking, but my humour's, you know, not good at the best of times. <laughs> okay, so but there are advantages to assessment. Um Treatment planning, I'll, I'll talk about this in specific detail as we go through. I certainly use this. Um, implicit information about prognosis, there is a terrible joke. It goes around in therapeutic circles. How do you treat a borderline? Okay, you refer them on. <laughs> you, don't, you don't. You don't. You send them off to someone else. I'm, I don't actually feel that uh, dismal about the prognosis with borderline uh, Patients, but you do need to recognize that sometimes with people whose um, difficulties are quite extreme, especially handling emotion, that it might take two years before they're at the stage that other people are at when they walk through your door. So if you've got someone who's, who's slightly neurotic walking through your door, that's where someone who's very borderline is going to be after two years of treatment. Okay. So and you're going to have to have weathered a few storms in the process, okay so so that's what you need to know, and there's the certain things you just do and don't do, depending on what you think is happening. if you've got people that are consuming mental health services, like if they're working within the constraints of Medicare, for instance, and you sense that they're at the borderline level of organisation or that they've got borderline personality disorder. There are things that you just don't do because you can't treat that in 12 sessions. So you want them to walk out as strengthened as they can be at the end of 12 sessions, but you don't actually want to have really gone in to the deeper issues. So you need to sort of work those sorts of things out. Um, another advantage of assessment is it actually can help you communicate with empathy in that if you've got someone who's a schizoid in your office you'll know things that just really rankle with them or that would really hurt them. And you can stay away from phrasing things in that way. You can give them a message that they can bear to hear. So it actually is quite useful in terms of um, empathy on your part. And it also means that it's you if you can click what's happening for a person very, very quickly, you reduce the likelihood that they're going to go... Thanks for that session. Oh, no, don't make an appointment for next week. I'll be in touch, <laughs> right? And they're out of there, right? Um, so people can get very frightened. Um, if you go too quickly or zoom in too fast, um, so you need to know uh, what their defences might be. Jonathan Shedler, he's come to Australia a couple of times, actually. One of the reasons I got dobbed in to do the workshop last year was when he came to Australia the November before, I was asked to be a respondent or a commentator to his presentation. And I was unbelievably honoured because Shedler and Weston are like two of my very, very big heroes. And they've become increasingly heroic in my eyes, because I remember chatting to Ron Rapay, I don't know, probably 12 years ago, saying, oh, Weston and Shedler are going to put this system together that's going to you know, rival the DSM. Ron looked at me and went, good luck. <laughs> I was like, and I thought, oh, okay, not that likely then, huh? But they've actually done very well. It's a, a really interesting system, which is why I'm offering it to you today. The disadvantage yeah. of this swap, in a way, is that it kind of requires that you at least understand some psychoanalysis, uh, not a not a huge amount, but you need to just have a rough idea of how, how psychodynamic therapy might work. And so I'm going to be giving you just a tiny window into that today. And those of you who've done philosophy of psychoanalysis will really know the stuff. And those of you who haven't, I think might find it okay, sort of interesting. Okay, so what psychodynamic therapy looks at is aspects of self that aren't fully known. So they're parts of yourself that you are um, either not at all aware of, or sort of aware of, or aware of on certain days, or bits of yourself that are there in your behavior, but you don't think about them and speak about them particularly. Um, And these are the things that are manifested in the therapeutic relationship. So you may not be talking about it, but it will show in the way that you treat the therapist, right? So if you're always late for the therapist session, um, that speaks in some way to the, to the psychotherapist. If you hang on their every word, that tells them something about you, right? So that's, that's not necessarily stuff you're saying, but it's stuff that you're manifesting or showing. And those are also the things that are influenced by the therapeutic relationship, depending on on how those aspects of you get received. So what psychoanalysis focuses on is emotion, basically. That's one of the major uh, foci. That's why I emphasized it so much in last week's lecture, too. Um, it looks at the sort of affects you've got, the inbuilt ones. It also looks at the expression that you have. And it looks at the more higher order emotions like shame and guilt, wonder, those slightly more complex feelings, nostalgia grief, you know, that kind of stuff. It also looks at the way that you try to avoid certain things, like the way you try to avoid distressing thoughts and feelings. And people do it in all sorts of ways. Sometimes they just don't finish their sentences. That's a really common one. Oh, it's just that, well, I was going to say that, well, what was, what was bad about that was, well, no, not really bad, but okay, you've got the idea. Oh there's some conflict here about what one is feeling or thinking and so the, the words are not even quite coming out um, if you work psychoanalytically you also pay attention to recurring themes and patterns like lateness or idealization, where they think you're really great, or if they think you're really great, but just as they're leaving going, oh, I'm not sure about this therapy business, right? And if if that's common, you sort of pick up on those little patterns. Or if they have a tendency to um, go after people that are devastatingly destructive for them, or if they are drawn to people that end up being abusive to them, or if they love people that are way out of their league and nothing ever happens but they write fantastic poetry. Okay, you look at those recurring themes and patterns in their life. What often happens is that people will discuss their past experience. Um, if you're really wanting to get to know a person, you treat the first session like a projective text and you offer no structure at all as the therapist, that would be the way I would prefer to work. You offer no structure whatsoever, and you just see what they say. And at the end of it, people will go, oh God, I'm going on a tangent here, or I'm not making any sense, or I've been all over the place, or I've told you nothing. And you're like, oh my God, you told me so much, you know. So, so you don't have to impose a structure in the first session, but because you want to take someone's history across the first three or four sessions, you, if there's things they haven't raised, if they've never mentioned their family, they've never mentioned friends, they've never mentioned employment, you might ask them about that, but you might not. So, But usually the past gets spoken about. Um, with psychoanalysis, you tend to focus on interpersonal relationships. And in a subtle way, you've always got your ears and eyes open to what's happening in the therapeutic relationship, because you see that as a window in to how... Other people in their lives are treated there's also the exploration of fantasy life. Um, some people don't realize that their fantasies are revealing of their personality. It's like they sort of think, "Oh, this is just my fantasies that's got nothing to do with who i am It's like Okay, so does do your fantasies get beamed down from Mars then, or you know, like where do they come from? Because of course they come from the person. Like, of course they're revealing of the person, but people don't necessarily think that. They just go, oh, it's just rubbish. Yeah, it's just rubbish. I think occasionally, but actually, incredibly revealing. As as good as dreams in a way. Um, you have to watch things like um, self-other relations, um, how fantasies make sense of or avoid experience, like what are people using their fantasies to do? Um, And you also want to look at whether the fantasy life interferes with pleasure, and if it doesn't interfere with pleasure, if it just makes the pleasure greater, then that's usually fine. But when fantasy actually gets in the way of actually enjoying life, that's more of a difficulty. Okay. What would be called the active ingredients um, of any kind of therapy and They are often seen as kind of psychodynamic elements, uh, things like the open-ended, unstructured dialogue. That's not something that you really see in CBT, I don't think. Often... CBT has got you know quite precise things that they want to work out and give you homework about and you know challenge unconscious patterns in the way that you have um, overgeneralized thoughts or that you catastrophize or that you attribute everything bad to yourself and everything good to chance etc so they've got you know a much more precise way of starting out whereas psychoanalysis starts very open ended very unstructured and sometimes stays that way focuses on recurring themes particularly things that link feelings and perceptions that you're having now uh, to experiences in the past. That's that's the kind of cliché view of psychoanalysis, but it's true. It's often, too, a way of um, drawing attention to the fact that people often do have a full-on affect of life, sometimes of very unacceptable feelings, like anger and envy and excitement and grandiosity or pride or whatever. Uh, but often those... Uh, Emotions are expressed in a very disguised way, almost like well, they're not really mine, they're not really true of me. And sometimes the role of the analyst or the therapist is to actually sort of say, gosh, that action of yours was really quite explicitly harmful to that other person. Oh, I didn't mean it. No, but you did consistently harm that other person by those actions, you know, in seven different instances. Ah, oh. oh. You know, the fact is there. There are these recurring themes of, of hurting another, but I didn't mean it. But there is this pattern. You know, you, you need to look at this pattern. What might this pattern mean? And so sometimes you're actually drawing attention to that there might be anger that's gone underground, or there might be it might be so unacceptable to acknowledge anger that the anger isn't acknowledged, but the angry actions just happen seemingly. Of well, you know, no one's intending them, but they just keep happening. The real way that the neurosis gets unpacked, in a sense, or stopped, is when you are able to draw connections between the way that the person relates to the therapist and the way that they relate to other people. Um, I, I apologize to those of you who know this joke. It's it's actually a true anecdote from many, many years ago. One of my very dear friends was going into analysis and um We were having a young child. She said, Is it okay to have two therapists? And I went, What? You're not going to see them about infidelity, are you? And she went, How did you know? (laughs) I was like, Oh man, like, you know, (laughs) is it okay to have two therapists? (laughs) It was just so gorgeous. And she she thought I was kind of spooky as a result of that. How could I possibly know? Good. Okay. Now what and this is where the CBT people that were in the audience when I was giving the workshop they didn't like this. I should have had my data to prove it but, um, but one of the studies that shed, one of Shedler's other articles on um, science shows that when therapists adhere to what's called the psychodynamic prototype, which is what I've just described to you, this was actually what predicted successful therapeutic outcomes and it didn't matter if they were actually psychodynamic therapists or cognitive therapists, if they allowed unstructured communication, focus on feelings, focusing on unacceptable feelings, look at connections between present experiences and past, if they looked at um, connections between the way that the therapist was being related to and others in their lives were being related to, that was what was predicting a successful therapeutic outcome. And those are seen as quintessentially psychodynamic elements. So Freud's famous for saying that he wants to replace neurotic suffering with ordinary human misery. He sounds like so optimistic, doesn't he? But the aim is not just to have people being symptom-free, but also to look at the positive presence of inner capacities, to love and work with the minimal conflict. That's his theme, and it's certainly still the case. Therapeutically, you can more or less assess what's going on for a person if they're able to love, if they can have mutual, sharing, caring meaningful relations. It's probably one of the best indicators that something's going right for this personality. It doesn't matter what else is going on. If that's going, that's going to counterbalance any difficulties they might be having. Okay, so what does the swap offer? Well, this is Jonathan Shedler's take and Drew Weston's take, but I'll just reproduce it for you here. Um This is something that has been in the literature for years and years and years about the DSM, so they're just kind of bringing together things that people have been thinking through. Certainly, I would remember since the DSM, uh, DSM-3, dsm uh, people have been really down on the DSM, and everybody tries to, to get it to work, but the problem is there's just enormous politics around anything like the DSM. If you think about it, this is the one that I remember, the big controversy I remember, the uh, big drug companies didn't want there to be two different types of depression, endogenous and reactive, because they wanted um, antidepressants to be viable for both types of depression. Then they discovered that, well, antidepressants are rather better with reactive depression and not so good with endogenous depression. Okay. Redefine them. Separate them again. <laughs> you know, because we don't want our drugs to look like they're doing badly. So, so a lot of uh, big money can influence the kind of the way that things are defined and labeled and measured and assessed and counted. And you have to take that seriously. It would be lovely if it weren't true, but there are always, um, politics. Because they won't get funded for treatment and things as a result of that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I haven't been tracking that one. I've been tracking a few things about the DSM-5, but not there. Thank you. Okay, so I mean, as psychologists, you really would throw your hands in the air with the DSM. It's like it's a che- it's a checklist basically. If you get you know five or more, you've got it. Um, it's it's not sophisticated stuff really. Um, the problem is that the kind of carving up of the categories, there's little empirical basis for the categories. Some of the categories disagree with what we know from factor analysis in other domains. The worst sin, Alan Taylor would just be tearing his hair, is that you dichotomize continuous variables. Like if you think about traits, you've know you got them to a matter of degree, but with the kind of criteria in the DSM, it's either you tick it if it's present or absent. And so how how little empathy do you have to have before you have a total lack of empathy? I mean, it's a serious question. The other difficulty is that you can't weight criteria in terms of how central they are defining, a a syndrome, if you like. So it's not all that sophisticated um, statistically. The other thing is that within psychology, we tend to require that our assessment procedures have what's called discriminant validity. Like if I've got a shame scale, and I'm saying shame is a really bad emotion because it makes you nuke the other or hide or destroy the, the audience. Okay, so shame's not great, but guilt's good because it makes you try and You know, make good the bad that you've done. I want a scale that doesn't have shame and guilt overlapping. I want scales that have got discriminant validity, that can discriminate shame from guilt, for instance. Now, it's very difficult to discriminate personality styles if the way that you end up having some kind of personality disorder is something went wrong with subject-object relations. Something went wrong with your affect regulation. Something went wrong with your capacity to trust others. Okay. All of those things start very early in life. If having those things sets you along the path to having a personality disorder, I can't distinguish an avoidant personality from a schizoid personality, from a narcissistic personality, from an antisocial personality, because they're all going to have at least one or two of those things in common. So if I don't want correlation between my categories, I'm staffed, as it were, okay? Because there's going to be correlation, because there's going to be attributes that they share. And so to try and prevent that overlap is not so, basically, because it doesn't fit with clinical insight, and it doesn't fit with empirical data. And so I think in the DSM-IV, they were discussing excluding lack of empathy and grandiosity from antisocial personality. Because they wanted it not to overlap with narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah, <laughs> quite interesting, eh? I can't. Oh, yeah. I'm interested. Okay, so with the swap, you're allowed overlap. You'll be pleased to know, and that's quite interesting. What happened with the DSM to, DSM as well is that it eroded the distinction between disorder and trait. One of the things that I find difficult, I've got a lot of philosopher friends who are really interested in psychology and they'll often sort of describe depression as um, what is it? Negative, Negative mood. And I'm going ooh that's a bit more than that, Do you know. It's loss of appetite, loss of interest in sex, you know what I mean? It's like, wow, it's not just, oh, I'm not feeling so great today. So, you, you know, you don't want to reduce something that's a whole syndrome of motivational, affective, behavioral, appetitive, you know, things. Oh, yeah, it's just one element. It's just negative mood. It's a little bit more complex. Well, it's the same here. You don't really want to erode the distinction between a disorder, which is a a syndrome, a whole collection of things and traits. And, uh, and Schedler and Weston suggest that syndromes have been reduced to traits in the DSM. And what's wrong with that is that when you look at a syndrome, you go, okay, they've got a few things going against them, but they get on really well with other people. Um, they really spark up when they get into their workplace. Family environments lousy, you know, in other words, you look at the whole gestalt. You look at how things fit together as, as a kind of gestalt, and so the compensating strengths really matter, and so does the meaning of the person's symptoms. I know that sounds strange, but if, if you're interested in anorexia or bulimia, it's not just that the person restricts their intake. What do they think they're doing when they're restricting their intake? What does it mean for them to do that? Are they being perfect? You know, Are they being without need? You know... Are, what, what are, they, are they severing connections with a dysfunctional family? It, you know, the same behavior could mean so many different things. So you need to know the meaning of a person's symptoms. Um, and also, I suppose the major thing is that, the, certainly in the DSM-IV, there was a neglect of, of inner life and intrapsychic experience. Now, most of the novel therapies that I see people talking about, like that research psychiatrist that I was telling you about last week, Martin Brun, he's really fascinated by the fact that, you know, people with borderline disorder um, have metacognitive difficulties. They think about their thought processes in a different way. That's inner life. That's intrapsychic experience. If you just define things behaviorally, you're not really getting at that dimension, and I think that matters. Now, Clinical judgment really got a very tough time in the 60s. When I went to university in the 70s, everybody was still talking about the anti-psychiatry movement that sort of really had its heyday in the 1960s. And it was like, you couldn't get two psychiatrists to agree about the defining features of a person. They'd be shown the same person, they'd write up their reports, and there'd be almost no overlap in their diagnosis. And that was real. Okay, so it was a very inexact science, because people came from different traditions, they used different labels, they didn't have a sort of common language, as it were. So the DSM was brought in to try and sort of solve this mess, in a sense. And so it did that, unfortunately, by eliminating clinical judgment. By using the kind of standardized questions and decision rules that means, you know, a reasonably bright monkey would have a go at, um, you know, putting together diagnoses. Now, what you don't want to do is you don't want to take the person out of diagnosis. You don't want it to become a computerized system, in a sense. You want to keep the sort of clinical judgment in there. And what the Shedler-Wesson process does, the swab, is it actually harnesses quite literally, the subjectivities of seasoned therapists, and I'll tell you how it does that, because it it introduces an algorithm. It's all right. didn't, didn't make too much noise at all. It introduces an algorithm. So you kind of plug in your ratings, and it kind of number crunches your ratings in terms of, okay, the things that you put in as being really true of the person, like you know, the first five things that you would say, this is, these things are really defining of this person, right? It will weight those and and give you a sort of like um, a profile that says it's most likely that this person has got this kind of personality difficulty, Okay, and it will give you a complete readout on that. So the what the algorithm is, it's like this distillation, if you like, a distilling of heaps of clinical knowledge, the kind of inferences that clinicians have made, and the consistent impressions that they have. So the way that they devised it was, um, they got video recordings of people who were agreed by an array of experts to have a particular personality disorder, and they then sent that video around to, I can't remember, I think it was like 84 or something in the first pilot test, and got them to, to sort of generate statements and descriptors that they would use to describe this person. And they tried to systematize the descriptions so that they got a sort of jargon-free way of describing behavior and experience and defense. So it's not just what you do, it's the way you try to avoid feeling or, or avoid doing certain things that also gets coded. Okay, the problem is, that you still need to be a skilled observer. In other words, you need to be able to observe clinically. You need to make inferences about what this person is likely to do and what they're likely to experience. And so you need a certain level of skill and training to be able to do that initial clinical diagnostic interview. And the only place that you can do it, I think, is... um, Drew Weston's University, which I think at that time was Georgia. So that's one of the difficulties with the the swap. But um, I think if you've got clinical training in taking what's called history taking, of picking up on the currents in a person's life, you'll actually be able to generate descriptors using this technique. In-depth knowledge of psychoanalysis certainly helps, but they're saying it's not required. I'm not sure though, I I sort of feel like you could certainly generate the descriptors without knowing psychoanalysis, but I'm not sure that you'd know quite what to do with those descriptors afterwards, like how would you treat this person, what would their prognosis be. I think you'd need a little bit of um, psychoanalytic understanding to be able to do that next step. One of the difficulties with the DSM is that the most that you get in terms of the checklist is sort of eight or nine items. And with the swap, they say you need at least 15 items to get the gist of things, to get the full gestalt. So what they're saying is clinical observation isn't unreliable. It's just hard to study it systematically. And they say, look, the the advantages of the swap are that it means you don't have to chuck out the whole assessment idea because you don't want to go back to that overly subjective Early days prior to the DSN, that wouldn't be an advantage. That would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater in a sense. So it's not the, the problem is not that clinical judgments are unreliable, but it's that they, their, their form makes them very difficult to use. In other words, different clinicians may well be describing the same thing, but they might use a different language, or they may actually be paying attention to different things. Okay, so you've got someone who comes in, and they, the kind of story that they tell you about their past depends on how they're feeling right now. Okay, if you were a Kahushan, you'd say, okay, they flick through different self-states. If you were, um, say, Mary Tage or Phonagin, you'd say, they have affect regulation difficulties, and their capacity to soothe their stress depends on their emotional state, okay? If you were a Fairburnian, you might say, well, they've interjected an anti-liberal object from their punitive father, and when that's activated by the external environment, they tend to split things into angels and demons, right? Now, those three descriptors are, are roughly zeroing in on the fact That what sort of story a person tells about their past depends on the state they're in at that moment. And if big emotions are part of that state, they're not necessarily going to give you the same account of the past that they give you when they're in another state. I'm not suddenly going to go, multiple personality disorder, dissociative identity. But you've got to realize, yeah, these people are giving radically different accounts of their past. It's got something to do with emotion. And they're not necessarily remembering that they're giving different accounts of the past. It feels like the one they're telling now is true. So something interesting is going on. But can you say that in a way that doesn't require a whole lot of you know theoretical scaffolding and machinery? That was the aim of the swap. So what a clinician relies on is not just what is said by a client, but how it is said, the manner of acting with the clinician, as well as their own emotional reactions to the client. So when I talk that, especially in the next lecture, when I suggest that one of the best ways to know if you're in the presence of a narcissist is how they make you feel. If you feel subtly diminished, if you feel a bit small, if you feel like I'm not really all that good at what I do, and it's every time this person's around, chances are they have some slight narcissistic tendencies. Now, that seems scandalous in a personality course. You you mean my feelings as a source of assessment? But actually, if you don't normally feel that, and you feel it every time you're with this person, you know, your feelings are a basis for assessment, in a sense. So when clinicians assess a lack of empathy, they don't suddenly get out the Davis- Hot and cold empathy scale, although there's no reason why you couldn't. It would just be a bit, you'd lose a bit of rapport, be a little bit alienating. You could do it at the end of the session or get them to take it home or something like that. I'm not sure I'd use it in a clinical session ever. But what they notice is things like if the client makes you feel that you're interchangeable, you're not a particularly special therapist, or if they don't really Pause to hear what you've got to say. If they treat you more as a, a sounding board, and it's full on, non-stop every session, okay? That, that sense of that gives you the sense that they haven't got a, a lot of empathy. Um, and there's all sorts of other really sort of subtle markers about it in the way that they speak about other people. If it's kind of like, um, oh, I don't want to be around him right now because he's so depressed because he's just split up with his girlfriend, so he's no fun to be around, right? Okay, that that just signals something to you that this person takes care of themselves, but not necessarily takes care of their friend in that state. And the other thing that you can do is assess whether or not do I feel this in general, because if I feel it in general, it's probably more about my personality. But if I only feel it in the specific situation, it's it's possible that it's actually true. Of the client rather than true of me, but you know you can always be wrong. You've got to. It's an imprecise art in a way. What, what people also pay attention to is the kinds of description of others by the client. Are they just 2D characters? Do you never really get the the feeling about their friends or their lovers or their family? Are they sort of described just in terms of the functions they serve? Because that's the hallmark of a slightly narcissistic, unempathic sort of approach. Or the needs that they meet in the other person. So the heart of psychoanalysis is precisely that. It's clinical inference that you infer from the way they talk about others or what they don't say about others. That's actually the way that you feel your way into personality. And what the DSM neglects is precisely that sort of whole picture gestalt, the functions that these different attributes serve. How do they fit together? What meanings? How did they arise? That's something I'm obsessed with in this course. Like, what are the developmental trajectories of these attributes? And what's maintaining them? Like, what is it about their everyday life now that's making this still an issue for them at a personality level? These are the things that aren't sort of picked up on just behavioral checklists. So the solution is to find some kind of marriage of both clinical wisdom but a bit of empirical rigor as well. And that's what they're suggesting this does. It gives you a, a bridge between the more descriptive psychiatry where you just sit with the person and, and you know work out quite unique ways of describing them or can you formulate cases in ways that are broadly understandable by people who've got a psychodynamic orientation. Okay, so they're suggesting what we need is assessment that's clinically useful, it's got the right kind of scope, but it also tells you what to do once you work out what this person might have as a personality style. You also want it not just to be clinically useful, you want it to be, you know, reliable and valid from a scientific point of view. You don't want to chuck out the norms of science. So what the swap does is it gives you Literally, two hundred statements, and if you download either the manual or that article, it will give you all of the two hundred statements and The first thing that anybody's going to do, I would imagine is race it about themselves okay, and that 's a very good thing to do um, you'll start to sort of see you know patterns now there's different ways that you can do this though, and I just need to just bore you stiff for a moment to tell you about cue sorts, so I hope you 'll forgive me it 's actually Quite important. You know, with normal tray measures, you go, okay, this is really descriptive of me, or this is not at all descriptive of me. And you can just go through limitlessly, giving sevens to this or zeros to that. The only problem is that's a personality style in its own right, too. There are people who only give sevens and zeros. They dichotomize the world. And then you get someone who never gives anything except a four and a three. In other words, you get response styles. And that's going to get in the way of reliability because you're going to be number crunching where people use the numbers in very different ways. So what chedler Weston have done is they've... Breathed life back into Jack Block's Q-sort method, which I think is actually a really great way of working. And what it means is that it restricts you in various ways. It says you're only allowed, you know, seven or eight in the really true of me category. Do you remember back in lecture two when I was talking to you about um, the ideographic method, and I was talking to you about Runions? 1983 bit of research where you could give, oh, I think it was 195 trays to the teachers, and they could rate the kids on all of them, and the correlation was only about 0.5. But if you said to the teachers, just ask the risk the ones that you really think are true of that child, the correlation went up to 0.95. Okay, well that's what they're doing here. They're saying, pick out the ones that are just really true of you. Say we're talking about ourselves, and you're not allowed more than you know seven or eight in that category. So initially you'll have way too many in that category, but ultimately you'll be able to pair them back. So it's like the the attributes give you the vocabulary, but the Q sort gives you a kind of grammar in a way. It forces you to a distribution. There are disadvantages of that, but there are big advantages of being forced into a distribution. So the SWAP200, oh gosh, I radically underestimated. I said 87 clinicians. The early version had 797 clinicians' inputs. And they had, on average, 18 years of experience. And it's this that made that initial algorithm that you, when you put your ratings in on computer, your ratings get weighted in terms of the clinician's algorithm. And I won't bore you with the details of that, but I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a minute. So the inter-rater reliability is actually pretty good. It's about 0.8 for all of the scales. It assumes, however, that you're pretty good, that you can do a clinical diagnostic interview, which is basically just asking people for narratives of their own lives. But
0: you'd have to listen to them
1: in terms of the milestones that I've given you in last week's lecture, that I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this week, and certainly the ones I'm going to talk to you about. Next week. So, in a sense, what I'm trying to give you are the kind of clinical milestones that you would listen for if you were trying to do a diagnostic interview. Things that would make you pay attention, that you go, "Oh, okay, I'm I'm listening to this." Okay, so this is the cue sort. Basically, you're only allowed eight where you've given them a rating of seven. You can have ten cards that get a rating of six. You're allowed 12 cards that you've given a rating of five. So. The top is the pile, from zero to seven, from not at all true of me, to seven completely true of me, and below is cumulatively how many cards um, you're allowed. Not cumulatively, I beg your pardon, a raw score of how many cards you're allowed in each pile. So there should be a hundred items that are not not at all true of you, and I hope it's not the positive high-functioning ones, which are very easy to spot. Okay. So that's why using a cue sort's usually done by someone else rather than getting you yourself to do it. It's someone who knows you very well. Um, because it's, a, it's saying things like, um, tends to express anger in indirect ways. If you're rating that yourself, it's like, anger? I don't have anger. I just break my father's teacups occasionally. (laughs) Do you know? It's like, okay, so you're not going to have insight into the fact that you've got anger, that you're expressing indirectly, whereas someone else is going to get it. Okay, so the cue sort gives you um, the grammar, and the items give you the vocabulary. Okay, there's just a couple of things before I let you go and get a coffee. Um, If I can just alert you to a page that I think you'd really... Love to have a look at, yeah. And it's basically giving you psychoanalytic defense mechanisms in language that's almost completely stripped of psychoanalytic jargon. So swap item 116 tends to see own unacceptable feelings or impulses in other people instead of him or herself, and that's the defense mechanism of projection. Does anybody know what personality style that's central to? when you see unacceptable impulses or emotions that are actually true of you, but you see them in other people. To be continued. Okay.
0: That was Lecture 25 of the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose McKenzie peterson The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon.